Hello and welcome to the Psychomedia Podcast. I am Timothy Swan. And I am Baron Sundir Fell, and together we're going to discuss the funny side of psychology. I can't even, like, hear that without just being like, yes, in my head, in my head, Ben, you're always, like, in a red-striped tie interceptor. Anyway, before we go down that particular womp rat hole, um, uh, Psychomedia, it's a show, it has a structure, the first thing we, theor- in theory, do is tell you what we're talking about. I mean, Psychomedia is, it's, it's more than just a show, I feel like it's got, it's got a life of its own, uh, <laughs> Wow. Tenuous. (laughs) And in order to prove that, we're going to talk about anthropomorphism. And if you think that's hard to say, imagine typing it a million times. (laughs) And you'll imagine how we have felt during our prep this week. Um, Feedback. Uh, Ben, do you have any feedback? I do, Tim. I have feedback from Peter, the guy who very kindly provided us our first official piece of Psychomedia fan art in the form of Enzo, the Brazilian salmon pink tarantula, wearing the fetching fedora pink shirt and white chinos and being, frankly, awesome. Uh, thank you once again for that, Peter. It was amazing. He says, hi, thanks for the kind words about Enzo. I'm trying to be p- more prolific. So while I can't promise a two-faced slash zebra, I won't rule it or something else out in the future. Uh, well, you should promise us a two-faced slash zebra. And frankly, anything else we ask you to make us more <laughs> fan art. There's... You've really got the fan relationship sorted. I'm, I'm <laughs> trying to help Peter be more prolific by using more stick than carrot, admittedly. But... You know, sometimes you need to whip these artists into order, particularly well, you know, the ones this... who have no professional obligation what, to you whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, if you're doing it with an artist who you actually like are the patron of, that's just like, that's unfair working conditions. <laughs> um, I also have some feedback from Sam on the Facebook page. Uh, I think regarding uh, my accusations against Shakhtar and Singer, said, I read a case at work today about a man who faced 10 years in prison for reanalyzing... Uh, also with a Z, um, the results of a study until he got the results he wanted and then published them as a press release in a manner that constituted wire fraud. And what I really want to know is, what case is this? We should cover this study. Yeah, absolutely. More deets, please. (laughs) (laughs) I assume it's economics. I don't know why. It's just, I guess, wire fraud could only be a few areas. (laughs) Ben, much as I'm loath to uh, move at an unduly fast pace, <laughs> what has occupied the majority of your brain this week? Um, well, a couple of things. Uh, I've been watching that that new um, that new reality TV show on BBC One. You know, um, the one where uh, a romantic poet, an artist, a famous illustrator for his work on the Roald Dahl books and the cast of a late 70s sci-fi show compete for the approval of a panel of judges. You know, the great British Blake-off. Okay, I was here. I, I got the Blake. <laughs> I can just tell you that is much nicer than some of the word substitutions I've seen for bake um, it, it, on Twitter. And the other thing that's been occupying the majority of my brain this week has been the X-Wing miniatures game. Oh, Ben, why don't I have that game and all the miniatures? Why don't you? It's cheap. It's amazing. It's a really cool game. It's fr- yeah. Get it. Come the reason is because I have no one to play it with, I think. Ah, or the only I'm people I know who have it are like in Taunton and now in Oxford. Yeah. yeah. When I come to Oxford, we'll definitely play. We will. We absolutely will. Have you uh, got Multi Crow? 
uh, that will be my next purchase. Oh my goodness. I think the only things I want really is just like, I don't know if you can do it, whether it's like a point system, B-Wings, because just B-Wings. I have always loved the B-Wings the best. Yeah, th- so th- th- this could be me speaking right now. I got the start <laughs> set. I then immediately went out and bought a B-Wing. I then found out about a really cool like character you could get with an A-Wing, so I kind of bought that too. Oh, what was the name of the character? It was Tycho. Tycho's- oh, Tycho Kelchu. <laughs> He, he has an amazing combo that you can run with him, uh, which I won't go into. Uh, B, the B-Wing is really good. It's got Ibtisam. Ibtisam oh, like, yeah. Ibtisam is also a Rogue Squadron pilot. Yeah. And uh, that's it's a really good pilot. The, the model is fantastic. I'll be getting the Moldy Crow next. And you do fly it with Karl Katarn and Janors. And it's an amazing combination. And it's okay. awesome. If if any of you out there are into either Star Wars or miniatures gaming, then w- why haven't you already got the like the starter set is twenty five quid. The ships themselves, most are like the majority of them are like twelve quid. It's it's really cheap and easy to get into. You can like a, a standard tournament size army is a hundred points, which is anywhere between like three and five ships. So it's really, really easy to get it going. And the, it's a really, really elegant game. I'm saying really a lot, for which I apologise. But it, it's, it's fantastic. I've uh, been playing a lot of it. Uh, had a game with Stina too, which uh, went pretty well. And it's fantastic. I am sorely... T- I was going to say, get the Stina cup. strikes me as an A-wing sort of person. Do you sort of... Is it only me who, in my head, classifies all, all <laughs> people into which of the four, like, Star Wars yeah, rebel ships that, they would, like, suit? <laughs> I, I see her more as an X-wing, frankly, but that's just, you know... Just, um, the, the thing is, though, the problem is that because I'm playing it primarily with my friend Andy and we've kind of decided... We've kind of ended up splitting with me being rebels and him being empire just because that way you can kind of build up a force yeah, yeah, yeah more easily the problem is i feel like i need to have an empire f- uh, squadron composed entirely of tie interceptors led by baron fell because the tie interceptor <laughs> you could actually like, similarly you've got some paints you could paint the red stripes on them well yeah and also there's an uh, uh, the uh, imperial aces expansion pack where you get a red Oh, you do get guard tie interceptor, and you also get one with the red stripe on it. Okay, so you get a one eighty first. Okay, right then. If we don't start talking about this, we will talk about it the whole time because, yeah. like, uh, yeah. vicarious yeah. living through. Anyway, um, <laughs> anyway, uh, what have you been? What has been occupying the majority of your brain? You got well, five minutes. I guess, like, what could be considered a Jedi exercise. I've been learning. I've been learning about mindfulness at work. Um, I'm still quite bad at it, but I think I'm better at it than I was even two weeks ago, thanks to my uh, colleague and friend, Lisa. Um, But one of the things she got us doing was a Sufi exercise. I mean, Sufi, it's like a branch of, I'm going to say Shia Islam. Uh, They have the whirling dervishes. They do all sorts of much more like meditative slash dance related stuff. Very unusual kind of religious group. The thing they do is all you do is in turn between like two people describe everything you're aware of uh, and i wondered if we could give it a little try over the podcast of just describing everything you're aware of and then you know seeing how long you go and then swapping over okay are you are you, are you brave enough to try it sure i'll go first okay. and then you'll kind of know okay so it will just be a lot of statements so i'm aware of holding a pen in my hand uh i'm aware that my leg is crossed over my knee 
I'm aware of many different profile pictures of Ben on the screen. I'm aware of the words on the one side of the screen. I'm aware that I'm gesturing despite the fact that I can't be seen. I'm aware of the curtains and the window and the balcony to my left whilst my eyes followed that gesture. I'm aware that this room is quite cluttered and thus this exercise could last longer than I originally expected. I'm aware (laughs) of the Star Wars DVD that I can see sitting on top of the Learning Portuguese DVD on top of my printer and next to my router, which is flashing away in a happy rhythmic fashion. I'm aware that I just anthropomorphized my router. Um, I'm aware of my phone and how reflective it is despite being black. I'm aware that I may let Ben speak anyway. Now he has an idea of what the exercise is like. Yeah, I think inherently the fact that you're a poet really aids in the uh, kind of listening quality, radio quality of you doing a mindfulness task. (laughs) Uh, Okay, fair enough. I'm aware of a small Lego model of Thor sitting on my computer staring at me with a mixture of disbelief and disgust. I am aware of the blue glowing light on the monitor, which seems to be kind of sinister. I'm aware of my prep sheet out in front of me and the fact that we have covered maybe a third of the things that I had in the what move section. I'm aware of the audio mixer on my second monitor to my right, uh, which is kind of waiting for me to glance away so that it can screw up the audio. I am aware of the fact that I don't have enough water in my glass that would probably last me through the show. I'm aware of the fact that there's a check on my desk for £20 that I really, really need to bank. I am aware of the garden outside being filled with screaming children that I'm worried is going to come through on the podcast. I'm aware of the Nerf gun within our arm's reach at all times. Uh, I'm aware that there is a bottle of ketchup on the table which really needs replacing because there's only about a third of it left which will only last me about one meal. I mean, I'm going to stop there, but I yeah, keep going. Okay. Yeah, no. I think I've probably led you a bit astray. In theory... You're probably not supposed to think as much. Try and just go for the sensory stuff. But then if you become aware of a thought, so you don't chase it, you just then kind of say, I'm aware of the thought, and then you move on. Mm. And so I probably overly thought about the things, which is my problem. That's why mindfulness is difficult, is it's about (laughs) being in the moment and not chasing thoughts. And that's Mm. why that exercise is helpful, is that if you do it enough, you get used to just, and you can reach the limit of your own awareness and that, in theory, leaves you very relaxed when you get to the end of it. Anyway, so, so that's the it's actually more about getting to a stage where you list fewer and fewer things before you reach the end rather than but, yeah. more. But also that in that time, you've become aware of things that you weren't aware of. So like the fact that yeah. my leg was crossed over, like I wasn't really aware of that. And this was an example, I think, from when we actually did the like learning was my legs were in really uncomfortable like positions, but I wasn't really aware of it until I started to kind of extend my awareness to mm. what I was doing. Oh, huh. interesting. Okay. Do you want to talk about Elevati? <laughs> oh, we could do. Yeah, sure. I got the new Elevati CD. Long time listeners in the show may recall this band as being one that we have both been big fans of for a while. They are Gaulish folk metal uh, from Switzerland. Yes, and uh, they have just released their new album called Origins, 
which is brilliant. It's really good. I'm loving it. I listened to it all, uh, in its entirety on my drive down to Essex at the weekend, uh, and it did me very well. Um, in yes, particular- I need to listen to it more. I listened to it just before we started the show, and I don't know how much of it I've retained. I thought it was good, but I haven't kind of got the picked out the the individual songs as much apart from i think was that the pre-release track call of the mountains yeah so my it's i mean the call of the call of mountains and king were the true two okay. signals that they've released i can't with, see a belabored segue no so okay. <laughs> psychology yeah now the kind of the trigger study is actually going to come later uh, because of reasons. Uh, because I'm going to cover the entire theoretical basis of anthropomorphism. Uh, <laughs> so, in thirty seconds, and then I backwards. Wish. In thirty seconds, anthropomorphism varies. We should do the reduced psychology company. <laughs> where we do all of psychology except Freud in the first half and then the second half we do Freud and then we do Freud even faster and then even faster and then backwards yeah, that's so suitable because Hamlet is just the Freudian story isn't it a prime example of anthropomorphism that I encounter on a day to day basis specific type which I call British anthropomorphism <laughs> uh, which is where you apologise to yes. inanimate objects. Yes, apologising. To- I knew it. I knew it. That's this fantastic. is the thing, though, right? Sorry is such a reflex. I'd probably apologise to a wall if I punched it intentionally in rage. The question is... Do you apologise to furniture? Yes. I do. And, you know, that's the thing. Why do I and all of us struggle to tell the difference between human and non-human? You know, whether it's animal, vegetable, mineral or weird owl. <laughs> Basically, Epley et al. in 2007, they start to give us some context. Is that Epley us- et weird al? <laughs> oh, I'm never going to be he, able to he, see et He's et in a lot again. of studies, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, exactly. A remarkably profi- prolific well, He's author. very popular starting in like the 70s for college students. So it's, it's not surprising. Did you see what he did on Twitter yesterday or the day before? No. He went to a phone box, took a photo of himself by the phone box and said, I'm hanging around on this number for 30 minutes if you want to call me. (laughs) 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 Amazing. Okay. so, yes, there are 1.75 million known species, each with different characteristics. There are 10,000 religions. Not all of them are monotheistic. And even those that are describe non-deific spiritual beings. And then there's all the technology we make for ourselves. These are kind of the main non-human agents. All of these things we imbue with human qualities, which doesn't make sense unless you subscribe to the Scooby-Doo philosophy that behind every animal, god or robot is a jaded (laughs) ex-janitor. So, yeah, researchers have found that the gamut of things that people will ascribe human qualities... The gamut. Do you mean the, the gamut? I mean, like, there's a lot of different ways of pronouncing that word. I mean, you could say... <laughs> gamu. <laughs> another gamu. It... <laughs> oh, sorry, no. A gamu. A gamu. A gamu. A gamu. A gamu. What are oh. you doing? You've gone mad. You've broken. 
Would you like to be in a fan doesn't respond tribute act after the podcast? (laughs) I'll be. Actually, it makes no sense for me to be Swan because I can't really play the. You're the musical one, and I'm the one with the disability. (laughs) Okay, right, right. Let's let's get back to. There are. a panoply of things that people will ascribe human qualities <laughs> to. There are a smorgasbord of things that humans will, will ascribe human qualities to. <laughs> well, well, a panoply keeps getting bigger when it's not truthful. <laughs> Sorry, I'm disrupting. Yes. And, like, there's not time for this in that study. Okay. I can't afford to get distracted. Okay, so, yeah, things that people will ascribe human qualities to range from God to moving plants, to computer animated blobs, to geometric shapes. For example, why was six scared? Because seven is a dark film, man. Uh, I have to confess, I stole that joke from the internet. There's a lot of alternative endings uh, to that joke, not seven. Actually, there is an alternative ending to seven where Morgan Freeman kills Kevin Spacey instead. And for some reason, that's not rough because he just does it to like protect Brad Pitt. It's a really confusing, stupid alternative ending. Uh, incidentally, the most common ending to Why Was Six Scared is because Seven is a six offender. Right. Most of the existing anthropomorphism doesn't... Oh, yeah, we're doing anthropomorphism, aren't we? Yeah, I know. Sean Bean has agency, Ben. He's not just a bean. He's a human bean. Um, most of the existing anthropomorphism that's been studied... Uh, doesn't question the concept so much as assess how much animals live up to the qualities we ascribe to them, which we've covered in a previous episode. What no one's done comprehensively is explaining why we do it. Psychologists have just assumed it's a naturally human thing to do without questioning why, which is kind of opposite of the point of psychology. (laughs) So what is known about how anthropomorphism works kind of already generally? Well, we know that it varies between people and that different items are more anthropomorphized than others. Uh, We know that children do it more than animals, uh, more than animals. Children do it more than adults. It would be a weird world if the sign of being an adult was starting to have tea parties with your teddy bears. I mean, your bear mitzvah, if you will. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if bears are kosher. I don't know if that's offensive. Uh, We know that some situations elicit bears. (laughs) I don't think they are. It's just my suspicion. Kosher. Uh, bears because badgers aren't kosher and bears bears are not kosher (laughs) (laughs) yeah the land animal is kosher if it has split hooves and chews its cud it must have both kosher signs and bears have neither i was gonna say yeah they are carnivores and do not have hooves (laughs) (laughs) they are one of the most anthropomorphizable animals though because they're isn't that interesting because they have like the some of the most humanoid kind of movement and yeah. form. Like if well, well, there was a video I watched earlier today of a bear wandering into a village on its hind legs and it's just yeah. it's just pottering around the village and it just looks like a man in a bear suit. Yeah, well I'll I'll tell you the reason why that happens shortly. Right. Uh, but if you could send me that video for the show notes, I'm sure our video uh, listeners will be much more interested in that. <laughs> um so uh, we uh, also know that, yeah, some situations elicit more anthropomorphization than others, and some cultures use it more than others. Um, for example, human cultures more anthropomorphic than bacterial cultures. So there must be a theory that can describe at least some of this variability. 
So Ebli et al. believe that this interpretation of kind of what is driving behavior and intentions should function the same way as our other interpretations about, say, other humans. Knowledge is acquired, stored, activated and applied. So also application involves a sense of correction if it finds to be not working out. But they point out that as in most you know, social cognition, if knowledge is accessible, it will probably be applied as is. We are lazy slash efficient, depending on whether you have a positive or negative spin. Um, so, for example, I read the Star Wars comic Purge. I recall the important deaths of multiple Jedi. I am reminded of that comic by seeing the word Purge. I'm about to tell Ben, hey, did you know that Baltar Swan was killed by stormtroopers, but only after Order 66? Then I remember that that was Su Choi and Baltar Swan was stabbed by another of the hiding Jedi who wanted to use the dark side to defeat Darth Vader. So I tell Ben that instead. That's the process of knowledge, explained very simply in a way that everyone will understand. <laughs> so if that's... Baltar the... Swan. Yeah, my, my namesake... Uh, is also named after Gaius Baltar from Battlestar. That seems entirely apt. <laughs> yes, and instead she is like a very pacifist and she. female Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to argue that meant it applied less to me. But I suppose that's not true. Depends um, on so, who you ask. Yes. Yes, it does. So, if that's the case, then the level of anthropomorphism should be based on the likelihood of activating ideas about humans, the likelihood of correcting this with knowledge about non-humans, and the likelihood of applying the resulting belief to a non-human thing. Actually, although, yeah, I have used lots of blatant Star Wars references, I've spent so much of my life reading science fiction that when I read the phrase non-human, I think a sentient non-human alien rather yeah. than an agentic being that isn't a human, like a non-human primate. I hope that I'm not the only one. I'm sure I'm not the only one. So the first part is going to be pretty likely for all of us, because when anything makes a decision or appears to make a decision, the information we have most closely to hand about decision making is our own definitely human decision making processes, except for the silence in the audience. We start learning about the self as soon as we start learning about anything. And the things we start learning about straight afterwards are usually humans like our parents. So that knowledge will be rich, embedded and accessible, whereas knowledge about dogs will a always be coloured through the lens of the self and b always come later than the knowledge of the self. Hmm. However, if it becomes known enough and accessible enough, it can come to integrate or substitute with knowledge about the self. And so what we're reaching here is essentially to accompany the philosophical zombie, the philosophical werewolf. The knowledge will only substitute in certain conditions hmm. like moonlight. As well as the cognitive knowledge factors, there are apparently also motivational factors. And these are sociality and effectance. Now, effectance being a made up word means the need to interact effectively with one's environment. I am not sure I have that need. <laughs> but basically, it's a need of humans to be able to deal effectively with non-human agents and being able to predict what they'll do increases our effectiveness. It's basically what I do with precognition. Lots of really smooth conversations with prepared witty replies. <laughs> so, yes, sociality is our need and desire to make social connections with other humans. And anthropomorphism allows us to substitute non-humans into this, whether it's Siri instead of a personal assistant or a dog instead of a baby. Stop using pugs instead of babies just because they're ugly cute. Just have a baby. Come on. Actually, I shouldn't recommend that. Population is kind of out of control. Still. Stop using pugs I imagine so is a population of pugs. So. <laughs> well, yes. <clears throat> 
because in a way one pug is too many because it's really like they have a lot of suffering because of their inbreeding anyway um they look cute though man like if i was going to get a little dog like it would only be a pug that's the only little dog worth having okay yeah. anyway yeah what tangential chihuahua no oh right <laughs> tangential sorry so these all apparently give testable testable hypotheses the last one most obviously you know socially deprived individuals which show more anthropomorphism so their model of these factors working both independently and together they title seek sociality affectance and enlisted agent knowledge and what that tells us is that someone really wanted it to spell seek yep. i'm actually surprised that marvel don't have a seek they have sealed short sword and strike but not seek yet so uh hell hydra um, what variables relate to the seek model? Um, well, there are dispositional uh, personality variables, uh, there are situational variables, and there are developmental and cultural variables. So the dispositional factors are, they believe, for uh, illicit knowledge, the need for cognition, for affectance, the need for closure and desire for control, for sociality, chronic loneliness. Uh, the situational factors for illicit knowledge are perceived similarity, for affectance, anticipated interaction and apparent predictability, and for sociality, social disconnection. The developmental factors for illicit knowledge are acquisition of alternative theories, for affectance, attaining competence, and for sociality, attachment. The cultural factors for illicit knowledge are experience, norms, and ideology, for affectance, uncertainty, avoidance, and for sociality, individualism and collectivism. Honk. That's the individualism and collectivism honk. <laughs> and while I'm honking, did you write all those down? Well, of course not. Don't worry. No. I'll explain. <laughs> so, as I've previously mentioned, knowing about being a human is accessible because it's what we do. As the article points out, a person cannot truly know what it is like to be a bat, Nagel, 1974, a sloth, Gould, 1988. <laughs> Where have these references come from? <laughs> I mean, I have days when I feel fully slothful. And why are both of them animals that hang upside down? Is it, there are is days it when I feel quite batty. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, are they harder to be, like, imagine? Because they do that way more than humans. Also, superhero sloth man, you know, like, no, 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 this is tiring. No, 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 sloth man. His moss, the moss in his fur provides him with really no protection whatsoever. <laughs> He was bitten by a radioactive sloth and he developed three toes, but there were only two toes. Anyway, <laughs> what we do have to figure out how to be sloths are mirror neurons. Well, in theory, mirror neurons exist in higher non-human primates and they activate selectively when they see actions being done, but not when those actions are done themselves. And for people like me who enjoy spectator sport as a spectator, we probably have more mirror neurons than motor neurons uh just a little asterisk probably not that's probably a lie still uh, the point stands uh there's still only very little evidence that they actually exist in humans because you can't really do single cell recording in humans hmm. for their third point on holistic knowledge they state finally newborn infants are notorious in their need <laughs> for intensive caregiving infamous even i mean <laughs> I to say it's brutal if fair Children will start by developing rich, accessible ideas of humans and less so of animals. But as children get older, they'll have more knowledge of animals and so should and so should throw less anthropomorphism on the seashore. Before <laughs> four, children cannot comprehend the line between self and other in terms of knowledge. And Epley believes that this would apply to animals or objects too. So 
Find your nearest toddler. Do this test right now for me. Let me know how it goes. Ask a three-year-old, does the toaster know where your socks are? <laughs> oh, brilliant. Adults still show egocentric biases if you compromise their cognitive capacity or their motivation. So if we're asking a really boring question, like, say, sock location, and we get them doing a three-back memory test, then maybe they too would suggest the toaster knew where their socks were. <laughs> so they go through the contribution of the incredible number of factors they identified earlier. So need for cognition. People with a high need for cognition like to think stuff through more, so they're less likely to be anthropomorphic. Perceived similarity. Having human-like features will lead to greater anthropomorphism. That's the whole bare thing. And similarity in movement and morphology appear to be the key factors. Um, again, the bare thing. So children from <laughs> one to five, uh, for example, use motion to indicate that something is alive. And interestingly, this effect is preserved in adults, provided the movement is a similar speed to a human. So if it's slower or faster, you know, they see as, for example, toy robots or amorphous blobs as not like human. But if they move this at the same speed, they anthropomorphize them. The same thing applies if you change the speed of living creatures like plants. Time lapse photography show them moving towards the sun at the speed a human would move or which I think is really cool. If you film hummingbirds and slow them down to human speeds, they're rated as being more deliberate and thoughtful in their behavior. And if you slow them down to just slightly above human speeds, they're rated as being as anthropomorphic, but with ADHD or amphetamines. <laughs> the last part was obviously a lie. Uh, I, I, but potentially although it hasn't yet like. I was going to say, hasn't been tested. I guess I should say it is not yet known whether... <laughs> They would rate them as hyperactive humans. <laughs> so the morphological similarities are kind of obvious. Things that look like humans will appear to act in a more human way. This applies as young as nine months old. If you look at a human-like hand as opposed to a wooden rod doing exactly the same thing, the nine-month-old will react only as if the former acts intentionally. So the similarity probably activates ideas about how humans act. It's basically how our brains work. They're associative networks that kind of put like with like. So anything that connects ends up activating all nearby similar ideas, which means in our listeners' brains, Ben, activating one of us almost certainly activates the other. Isn't that brilliant? That like literally in potentially up to, say, 50 people, there's a neuron linking you and me in their brains. <laughs> so yeah. sweet. And this is how we get in. Now train that neuron to kill. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Experiences, norms, and ideologies. So, for you know, obvious example, the abilities and attributes ascribed to God or gods in a kind of human-like way are going to occur earlier in children in religious communities, e.g., Christian or Mayan. So apparently, <laughs> those are the two religions that have been studied. Really. Yeah, really. Uh, cultural factors will also influence the amount of contact with either animals or machines. So different cultures with different levels of contact will show differences in anthropomorphism. And they do. Urban, economically developed children show more anthropomorphism of animals than rural, less economically developed children. You know, if it's normal to talk to eggs in your culture, of course you're going to anthropomorphize them. I mean, Ben, did you know that I work in recruitment for eggs? I just love to poach them. Uh, did you know that I work in Air Force dispatching for eggs? I just love to scramble them. Uh, did you know that I work in execution for eggs? I just love to fry them. Uh, did you know that I work in overprotective egg care? I just love to coddle them. Uh, did you know that I work in egg tax law and accounting? 
I just love to use them as part of the law of diminishing returns. <laughs> they move on to acceptance. <laughs> Very good. I, think that's, I, I really think that's enough. Ah. <laughs> uh. Well, I, I knew that you weren't going to let me have the, the last of those particular yolks. Um, I know. I, I kind of chickened out of any more. <sighs> I mean, I, I've really got a whole argument of jokes here that I could use. <laughs> wait, wait, I've got, I've got some more. <laughs> no, no, it's good. Do, do carry on. Okay, can I just point out, if anyone likes eggs, and why wouldn't you? There is a page on Wikipedia that is like a super page from List of Ways to Cook Eggs, which is just list of egg topics, which includes everything on Wikipedia at all related to eggs, from eggs in reproduction to cooking eggs to Fabergé eggs, all on one page. I'm going to put it in the show notes because I was just in there going, why is there so much egg? There's no use for this index. It's just not useful. Is there some way that we can have, like, the blue button send you to a random egg-related page? <laughs> oh, I wish. I mean, if I could write that sort of code, <laughs> I would be a happy man. So, yes. Hebb, the Nobel Prize-winning neurophysiologist, noted that when his lab spent two years working with chimpanzees in behavioural experiments, which explicitly avoided anthropomorphism, they didn't really get anywhere. Whereas when they, with caution, anthropomorphized with ideas about emotion and attitude, they started to have breakthroughs. The point being that maybe anthropomorphism helps us understand a pattern that is otherwise too complex or else communicate that pattern. Mm. And even if it doesn't really achieve that, but makes us feel that it achieves that, it's probably worth doing. Anything that helps us delude ourselves is worthwhile. That is the closest that I've heard to something which not that we necessarily need one but which could count as kind of an evolutionary explanation for why anthropomorphism could be useful yeah I, I get that it, it, it you can certainly easily see it as a sort of evolutionary kind of um byproduct yeah but the idea that for example you're hunting because it's evolutionary psychology the example is always caveman and okay. if he's hunting a mammoth then you know, the patterns of mammoth behavior may be too difficult to kind of logic out. But if yeah. you start treating the mammoth as just a big hairy human, then you know how humans behave kind of intuitively. So you start to apply those principles and therefore yeah. you're better. And at animals behavior. are similar enough that that will. Yeah, well, yeah. Exactly. Especially chimpanzees. And I mean, uh -huh. even you can almost even make the argument for that when it comes to like ro robots and mechanical equipment, like, mechanical equipment is designed by humans so exactly the silos were made by man well get quite and toasters also uh <laughs> you know behave behave according to certain laws of that humans ascribe to them yeah kind of thing yeah absolutely so even though there's all these like psychological processes that kind of explain how it could be in a non like it's not really adaptive uh, in in a way, they probably argue that it was non like anti-adaptive. It was unhelpful, maladaptive. Perhaps Epley. Oh yeah. Okay, I couldn't think of the word. I was because like yeah. Anyway, um, so this might vary between people. For example, uh, people with different levels of need for closure, which is sort of an explanatory concept. Point is, people with a high need to closure tend to jump to conclusions with initially available evidence because they can't tolerate uncertainty. They'd rather have an answer than have to wait for the answer. 
Mm. Um, they don't have any evidence of how this relates to anthropomorphism. They expect it will lead to some more of it. Um, desire for control. So this is different to need for closure in that it's about the need to feel personally in control of what's happening in your life. Although you might expect someone with high desire for control to have high need for closure, you can think of a passive person who has high need for closure but low desire for control because, you know, being part of a system or being bossed around provides closure without providing control. Hmm. In general, those with a high desire for control see intentions and desires as the most important explanations for the behaviour of others. And thus, this would make you be expected to increase anthropomorphism. Now, desire for control doesn't make you a megalomaniac. You could very happily control a very small world and indeed might prefer to have less ambition because of you, like me, want to be a writer and a psychologist. So much of your life is outside your hands. You have to be quite phlegmatic about your destiny a lot of the time. On the other hand, desire for control would genuinely correlate with the desire for remote control. <laughs> That's true. More yeah. situationally, the anticipated future interaction will affect the extent to which you try and effectively communicate with whatever you're trying to interact with. If you anticipate future interaction, you seek more information about others, you make more inferences about their personality, you project your own beliefs and attitudes onto others more, it generally increases your motivation to discover a person's thoughts and interests. And these changes have been shown to apply to non-human agents in an anthropomorphic way. If you don't expect to interact with someone again, you just won't care. They're just a function to you. They're a glorified waffle maker, which is not to be confused with the Belgian Gnostic Christian cult, the Church of the Glorified Waffle Maker. Praise be to the glorious waffle. Exactly. In all his holy glory. And praise be to the glorified waffle maker that makes it. Um, <laughs> apparent predictability. The waffle precludes a waffle maker. Which is more waffle? The waffle or the waffle maker that makes it? <laughs> Can the, the waffle everything maker make a waffle this that even he cannot bake? <laughs> uh, the answer is Chantilly cream. Uh, why did I put waffle? I, I, I had some oh, God, My I girlfriend got me waffles. Just, ah. Oh, she is thank a good you. girlfriend. Thank you, Lizzie. Waffles <laughs> are great. Um, that's probably why I wrote that bit of prep, to be honest. It's the yeah. lingering effect of waffles in my brain, which... I suppose they would have done. Stomach, dissolve, you know, go up, blood flow, powered by waffles. Apparent predictability is something <laughs> that has been directly tested regarding anthropomorphism. In general terms, if something breaks expectations, we pay more attention to actual information about what its motivations might be. Computers, for example, the more a computer breaks during an experiment, the more it gets attributed intentions and mental states because a computer breaking totally breaks the expectations. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I don't fear the Matrix because it wouldn't last a day without dumping humans out of 1999 into a blue screen of death. <laughs> so when marbles can't be controlled compared to when they can be controlled, you know, you've got this magnet, you're supposed to move the marbles and sometimes they go in like directions off from where you want it and sometimes they obey you. Obey you, there, I've anthropomorphized even in explaining it. When they can't be predicted, the participants attribute intentions to them. And Epley themselves did a study which involved a video of two dogs and they got it pre-rated. One was rated as a lot more predictable. And they also got their participants to rate desire for control. They found the more unpredictable dog was rated as more human-like. And those with high desire for control rated both dogs as more human-like. 
And in another experiment by the same research team, they had participants rate a range of electronic devices and they had descriptions that either rated them as predictable or unpredictable. And of course, the unpredictable were rated as more anthropomorphic. Gosh, I'm glad that I chose the topics that I chose because that was one of the studies I was thinking of doing. Okay. At least it shows we're on the same page. Yes. Well, I think if there's anthropomorphism, Epley has read about it or done it. Right. Epley is possibly a giant stuffed teddy bear with human emotions. <laughs> Can't think why else they'd care this much about anthropomorphism. So, attaining competence. If we're motivated to be effective, then our level of effectiveness during develop- due to development is going to have an impact. And so at the point that children are exploring their environment, they seem to ascribe intentions to pretty much everything because they seek competence in interaction. However, children have less motivation towards staying in control. So it might be that adults and children anthropomorphize the same amount for different reasons. Think of it this way. If I'm rubbish at cooking, which I sort of am, I'll feel more competent at cooking if the sauce is naughty and choosing not to thicken rather than recognizing that I've done it wrong. And that will help me feel more competent. Mm. Uncertainty avoidance. So a researcher called Hofstetter tried to find the factors that make up cultures by analysing data from 66 nationalities in 50 countries and found that uncertainty avoidance was one of the five factors that vary by culture. So uncertainty avoidance represents the extent to which members of a culture feel threatened by uncertain or unknown situations. So if your culture is high on it, there's a cultural appreciation of structure, etc. It's basically need for closure at the cultural scale. This will increase anthropomorphism. I would be interested to know what the culture with the least uncertainty avoidance is. I mean, is it, for example, the Kyrgyz? Because they accept it's hard even to know how to spell one's name, let alone anything else. I guess other candidates might be Narnia or Neverland, both nation states widely associated with a great degree of uncertainty, which is, of course, also known as a philosophy degree. (laughs) In Hofstede's research, evidence for this is found in that high uncertainty avoidance is found in Catholic countries, but low uncertainty avoidance is found in Protestant countries. And Eplia al. described Catholicism with all its saints and transubstantiation as, if not more anthropomorphic, kind of more focused on imminence and those kind of non-abstract religious agents. Similarly, in a study of anthropomorphism amongst American and Japanese scientists, the Japanese, who score highly on uncertainty avoidance, showed more anthropomorphism than the USA, who score low on uncertainty avoidance. Hmm. Being social is, of course, very important. Being socially disconnected hurts like physical pain. When we experience that pain, we try and make up for it with photos and mementos or meeting new friends or getting pets or just attending to the social cues from the connections that we do have much more closely. And from these two, a more lonely person will look for more connection and pay more attention to what connections do exist, both of which will promote anthropomorphism. And Epley and the team tested this relationship by having participants rate anthropomorphic positive and negative uh, and also non-anthropomorphic qualities of a pet and seeing how these correlated with their level of loneliness. And there was an an a correlation between higher loneliness and higher rating of the positive anthropomorphic traits. And that is indeed how the Lonely Island became the island of Dr. Moreau. As evidence for... I didn't think that was going to land. <laughs> Again, I'm hoping for the one guy who seems to care both about Andy Samberg and H.G. Wells. <laughs> and I'm that guy. So when I listen to this, uh, I'm going to love it. Um, As for evidence for a more situational version of this, they cite Wilson in Castaway. Okay, to be fair to them, because that's not a citation enough on its own, much as we would wish it was. Um, 
They use Castaway experimentally, which is awesome. They used film clips to induce moods, just we were talking about last week. They asked them to empathise with Tom Hanks in Castaway. Someone in Silence of the Lambs, presumably not Hannibal Lecter, at least not after the pilot ended gorily, and someone in Major League as a control. Um, they then rated pets' traits, as in the previous experiment, and the extent to which they believed in various frequently anthropomorphised religious concepts. Although they didn't include, I don't know, non-anthropomorphised religious concepts like the Force, or I guess the Holy Spirit, karma. Um, uh, so what they found was that loneliness induction, using Castaway, uh, led to more anthropomorphism in both ratings. And they suggest it's not just positivity, because the anthropomorphic religious beliefs included, like, higher rating and belief in the devil, which is great. It's like, well, I'm not as lonely now Mephistopheles is sitting at the end of my bed. I mean, he'll try and tempt me into damnation, but at least it's not quiet, so more around the house. Also, <laughs> Wilson will kill again. So what they say is that we should use this knowledge to help us design better robots uh, and other automated systems. Because right. as OWAC found in That's... 2001... People, most people interact more with automata than with biological agents. <laughs> ah, sad but true. Um, z- z- uh, sorry, <laughs> hang on. Right, there we go. <laughs> Do you also need to feel the need to caress your phone for some kind of security? <laughs> Always. I, uh, is that literally the only like practical application that they found of this 29-page article? Uh, no, Let's there's a little bit... <laughs> No, no, don't worry. There's also fighting genocide, but we'll come to that. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I know. So they claim that more anthropomorphism leads to more cooperation with technology. The good examples of this that they cite are Microsoft Office Assistant and the Furby. (laughs) They're basically picking the worst thing from the late 90s and early 2000s. So, also... uh, we can make more social substitute technologies and we can measure bias. Uh, It turns out we give more socially desirable answers to computer voices than human voices. I think the reason for this is that we intuit that computers will be slash are in charge and that we try and sound better than we are, else they'll really have no excuse not to wipe us out. Finally, a term I use quite loosely, understanding anthropomorphism might mean we understand the reverse and the negative consequences that can have and also dehumanization which is another form of the opposite you know if we don't think of the earth like gaia or mother earth we'll more easily harm it if we see animals as less anthropomorphic we'll let them suffer worse conditions in farming or we'll spend all of our time walking up to cows going "Ooh, oh unknowable bovine no beefy enigma well we (laughs) speak to yourself Well, if we don't anthropomorphize, then we can't make sense of their behaviour, so we won't know that it's a bad idea. Like, of all the animals, they are some of the most enigmatic. They're pretty zen, aren't they? Just like chewing that cud, being that kosher. So, Seek does indeed seek to explain dehumanisation. For example, the more different, the less information sought, hence in race or mental illness, that's elicited knowledge, those who you want to wipe out, you don't need effective understanding of, unless you, you know a general. Uh, so that's I've been found by Zimbardo's group in terms of effectance. Mm. And those in the most interconnected communities, so the sociality, so the least humanising of the outgroup. So that's quite dark. Okay. D- ben, do, do I know I you're tired. To, do I get to go now? <laughs> Uh, you don't get to go, you so, get to do your psychology. <laughs> right. 
Well, we're going to start off with something which is actually kind of useful. Hooray! Um, anthropomorphism research. So, uh, to, to recap and summarise, <laughs> the basic idea of anthropomorphizing is that we treat something non-human as a little bit human. The thing is that being treated as human has a lot of implications, psychologically speaking. We spend the vast majority of our time dealing with humans, and as such, there are endless processes, biases, behaviours which uniquely result from interactions with other human beings. I mean, we have a whole sub-discipline dedicated to the psychology of human interaction, social psychology. Yeah. The upshot of this is that if we start to treat non-human objects as human, they will most likely start to be subject to some of, if not all, of the psychological phenomena we usually reserve for other actual humans. What if the thing that we're anthropomorphizing, consciously or unconsciously, is actually dangerous? In, in that case, ascribing human traits to it could be extremely unwise, particularly if the subsequent human-specific psychological processes lead us to treat the thing with less caution than we otherwise would. Which brings us to the current study, which is about how we're sexist towards hurricanes. Of course. Of course. Because science! Now, I think I might have mentioned this on the show before, uh, but this time we're going to go into it in actual detail because it's a really cool study. Um, So as you're probably aware, meteorologists are in the habit of naming hurricanes. Not just because it's boring to be a meteorologist. I don't think it is boring to be a meteorologist. Lizzie, is it boring to be a meteorologist? <laughs> I was going to say, I know that you've had a lot of reasons to want to get revenge, Ben. <laughs> Not on Lizzie. Uh, um, so, uh, yeah, uh, me- w- meteorologists name hurricanes. And the, apparently the reason for this is because it's thought to make... Uh, information about particular storms more memorable if there's a name for the storm it's easier to remember hurricane katrina than to remember like hurricane 1x3h4 or some you know code yeah. um the thing is probably the the best way to instantly anthropomorphize something is just to give it a name you know try it now grab the nearest object to you that object is now called jeremy congratulations you are now anthropomorphizing but don't worry jeremy doesn't mind Okay, that's a plastic cup. I'm going to have to put my lips all over Jeremy later. Well, he'll probably enjoy that. Uh, (laughs) So, the problem with names is that they are usually gendered. And the problem with gendered names is that people demonstrate gender stereotypes. And the problem with gender stereotypes is that they tend to describe females as weak, warm and passive. And the problem with being described as weak, warm and passive is that hurricanes really, really aren't. Nor are some women. (laughs) Well, yes, that too. But this paper is about hurricanes, not about sexism. (laughs) Oh, yes. Well, well, it sort of is about... It's about hurricanes, not about women. Um, But anyway, yeah. So the authors of this paper, uh, Jung and colleagues, actually. um, I suspect pronounced Jung rather than Jung. But anyway, Jung and colleagues carried out both archival and experimental studies to test the effect of gender on hurricane lethality. The hypothesis being that if a hurricane is given a female name, people will be more inclined to underestimate the danger it poses by ascribing those stereotypical traits to it, and therefore more likely to get whisked away to a magical kingdom populated by orange dwarfs and flying monkeys, or more commonly killed. So, in the archival study, they took hurricane fatality data from 1950 to 2012, 
and regressed that against an 11 point scale of name gender where so 11 was like highly feminine and one was highly masculine so definite points for methodology there uh, i was going to say wh where would you count hurricane sandy and the answer is somewhere in the middle yeah probably more on the side of female but it's going to be more you know more less feminine than like hurricane elizabeth or something that was entirely unconscious. Anyway, moving okay, on. Okay, yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> uh, so they found that for low or average damage storms, so like the less, the low or average strength ones, the ones that caused only a low or average amount of damage, there was only kind of marginal effects of gender. It wasn't really significant. But for storms in the high damage category, there was a large and significant effect of gender on fatalities. So according to the regression model they produced, a hurricane with a relatively masculine name, so about three on the scale, produced an average of 15.15 deaths, whilst one with a relatively feminine name, so nine on the scale, produced 41.84 deaths, wow. which is a pretty big effect size. And this is fair, you know, consistent with that hypothesis, because for the low and medium damage storms, it doesn't really matter whether people underestimate them. And therefore don't take precautions because the precautions aren't really going to influence their survivability. It's only in the most devastating storms that if you have this gender induced disinclination to take precautions, then that might end up killing you. As an interesting note, the authors mentioned that prior to the late 1970s, all storms were given female names because they were considered to be unpredictable. <laughs> So that's right. nice. We've moved from explicit gender stereotypes to implicit ones. Interestingly, when they split the data to look at pre and post 1979 storms, they actually found exactly the same gender effects in both cases. So even though up to the 1970s, hurricanes were being explicitly labeled for their unpredictability, people still thought that more feminine named storms were less dangerous. Okay, so someone with somewhere in the midline, even though they're all female names, yeah. they're like, I, I, I don't really want to use the word, I can't think, like, slightly butcher storms. You go, oh, she's scary. Yeah. I should do something. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so it's not just, like, it's not just sexism, sexism. It's, like, mask femme sexism as well. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, now, they do point out that the sample sizes of the storms that they had were too small to have kind of statistical reliability but that the effect still emerged and also it's, it's worth noting that the overall point of this study is isn't really this isn't really relevant towards that the point this point of the study is to show that the way we currently label storms is potentially dangerous and that definitely still holds true yeah it holds even truer when we take into account the experiments that they ran they actually did like six experiments um, of which they kind of report three in the main body and then, then another three in the in the methodology section. Um, so across the, the three main experiments, they found that female named storms were rated as less intense, less risky, and less uh, and, and that people had less intention to take active precautions for those storms, like staying home or following an evacuation order. Um, so brilliant experimental evidence as well. Rather nicely, across several of these experiments, they used kind of content matched names like okay. Alexander or Alexandra or That's Christopher good. and Christina. Weird occurrence of names there. Yeah. Just interesting. Um, uh, also, uh, at no stage did they find any effect of participant gender or of name familiarity. So it's good controls there. Yeah. They do point out that the results could be due to the fact that male, there's some evidence that male names are just reg regarded as m more associated with danger and therefore would be 
regarded more negatively, and they suggest that this is a possible avenue for future research. But overall, the, the actual mechanism for the effect is arguably less important than its mere existence. Um, because, you know, they, they're pre- presenting fairly convincing evidence for the fact that the ex- effect does exist. They do report a couple of interesting additional effects, which kind of relate because they're, they're, they're framing this as a kind of implicit bias, an implicit kind of stereotyping bias. And there's some things we know about how implicit social biases work in terms of who they work, who they're most strong for and how you can counteract them. Um, um, for example, one effect that they found is that there was a moderating effect of gender trait beliefs. So people who actively reject the idea that women are warm and yeah. passive and males are aggressive and active, people who reject those beliefs don't show the naming effect. So they kind of protected from it. However, that was demonstrated in one particular experiment. And given that they were asking people, you know, do you accept or reject gender trait beliefs? Now, please rate these male and female named hurricanes for, you know, potential danger yeah that that may be a transparency issue anyway basically in conclusion the authors recommend some very practical uh, responses to this they obviously recommend introducing a new system for naming hurricanes though they don't suggest exactly what that should be i suppose an an obvious answer would be to well (laughs) i was going to say a a blinkered and obvious answer would be to only name the most dangerous to give the most dangerous storms male names and the least dangerous storms female names but that that's just compounding the problem um my suggestion was just make them memorable names that are like non-anthropomorphic but make sure they're really bad so like hurricane cluster freud (laughs) hurricane doom (laughs) yeah that that works hurricane house smasher you know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah i like that that's a good one hurricane you're going to die go inside <laughs> hurricane systematic racism in america yeah sorry yeah. they've they've had that one um satire <laughs> wow yeah so uh they also suggest that they uh, that me the media should avoid the use of gendered pronouns when describing hurricanes now that I mean, that seems like even more pissing into the, well, into the hurricane. Like, if you can't persuade the media not to disclose names of serial killers or, like, um, school shooting uh, perpetrators, you're not going to stop them anthropomorphizing a storm. You probably have more luck with the meteorologists, frankly. Yes. The final one that they suggest is just promoting awareness of the possibility of this implicit gender bias. Because when you make people aware of implicit biases, they tend to actively counteract them as long as those implicit biases are seen as um, undesirable. So, you know, for everyone except the, like, sexist dinosaurs out there, this should work. And that would actually provide quite a nice way of culling off some misogynist dinosaurs. So, uh, yeah, hurricanes, practical stuff. Shall I, uh, shall I do my next study? Given that we're doing this episode on anthropomorphism, I thought it might be worth devoting a small section of the show to the kind of the opposite phenomenon. 
you know, we define anthropomorphism as tendency to ascribe human characteristics to non-human objects. So if we invert that, we find the generally rarer tendency to ascribe non-human characteristics to humans. So furries, right? Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Now- this is we're we're doing it. This is what we're doing. Just sit back, accept it. For those that don't know, furries or members of the furry fandom are a small but significant subculture united around interesting aspects of zoomorphism and or anthropomorphism. Uh, I think the emergence of furries as a cohesive subculture is probably... I was going to say, those two really do clash as well, the zoomorphs and the anthropomorphs. Uh, do they? Let's find out. Oh, really? Okay, well, I might be wrong. Of, That's always the impression I got. Aspects of that. Um, so the, I think the emergence of furries as, as this kind of cohesive subculture is probably mainly due to the internet and its wonderful and terrifying potential for both indulging and kind of honing people's interests, identities, sexualities, etc. Nothing sends you faster down the road to extreme nichedom than being presented with every possible permutation of your burgeoning interest so you can find out precisely what type of subculture you identify with, belong to, and most likely masturbate over. So the furry movement is an interesting example of this for a few reasons. Uh, It's one of the larger internet-catalyzed subcultures, yet retains still retains stereotypic perceptions of extremely niche minority status and also vehemently negative reactions from many uh, whose internet habits lead them to brush up against fairies from time to time. Quite why fairies elicit such disgust is uncertain. It's probably at least partially due to strong associations with kind of animal-related sexual fetishes, which do occasionally overlap in a subcategory of fairies referred to rather wonderfully, in my opinion, as ferverts. Okay. Um, But this also raises a key aspect of the fairy fandom, which uh, provides part of the driving force behind the study that I'm going to talk about. That is, as a group, furries are highly diverse in their interests, their identities, their activities, the way that they relate to their furry identity. Yeah. The only real common factor such as it is, is just an interest in some sort of merging of humans and animals. But this can encompass anything from, you know, at one end, someone who just quite likes fiction involving talking animals to someone who dresses up in a fursuit, uh, to someone who does that for sexual gratification. See also yiffing uh, to what I'm glad you mentioned the word. I find it just a hilarious word. word. It's a wonderful word. It's kind of onomatopoeic. (laughs) For those that don't know, yiffing is a term used to describe the noise made by furries wearing fursuits uh, indulged in sexual gratification. so, uh, to, can we go know, back to the first one where it's liking liking anthropomorphized animals yeah. is puts you in the because like it, I well, love it, watership down it can do like it, okay that there are people there are people who would self identify as furries whose interest kind of extends about as far as that lovely um, okay obviously probably in order for them to self identify that way it's probably going to be quite an intense liking for that kind of thing but. Yeah. They, you know, that you don't have to want to wear a fur suit. You don't even have to consider yourself, you know, part animal to be a fairy. Um, yes. So, uh, and then you get the other extreme, which is kind of like the what might be called the extreme of zoomorphic identity. Someone who identifies themselves as kind of more animal than human, like an animal spirit trapped in human form. And these individuals sometimes self-identify as other kin. Is a term yeah. that is used. And they present 
quite an interesting psychological case. And this case was investigated by a researcher called Kathleen Gerbassi and colleagues in 2008, uh, who managed to collect a quite impressively large sample of survey responses from furries on questions relating to identity, personality, sexuality, and specific experiences with kind of the furry identity. Now, it's particularly impressive that they managed to do this uh, and get a sample of more than 200 furries, given that the negative stereotypic image of the, that the fandom generally inclines them towards sort of self-segregation and mistrust of, you know, people trying to, the outsiders trying to, um, you know, discuss aspects of their, of their subculture. Anyway, some interesting points from the questionnaire. Uh, the demographic questions included sp questions specifically targeted at testing the validity of the fairy stereotype. Apparently, the stereotype of fairies is that they are fat, bearded, glasses-wearing, gay, uber male uber-nerds wearing fur fursuits. Um, so, apart from being asked to state their age, occupation, sex, and sexuality, participants were also asked how much they watched cartoons as a child, how much they enjoyed science fiction, and whether they had glasses or a beard uh, for males only. Um, they also asked uh, furry identity questions. Do you consider yourself a furry, whatever furry means to you? Do you consider yourself to be less than 100% human? We'll come back to that one later. What species of animal other than human do you consider yourself to be? If you could become 0% human, would you? Again, coming back to that one later. At what age did you realize you're a fairy? At what age did you become connected to the fairy culture? Do you know? Do any of your family members know that you're a fairy? Do you own a fursuit and do you wear a fursuit? So they also asked six questions specifically relating to non-human species identification. And these items were, um, do you think that you are born with a connection to other species? That you share a connect characteristics with other species? Um, do you think you were non-human in a previous life and being, have been reincarnated as a human? Do you think you have mystical connection to other spe species? And then the final two, um, do you have a feeling of discomfort or inappropriateness concerning your human body? And is your, are you a non-human species trapped in a human body? Those last two were paraphrased from the DSM-4's criterion for gender identity disorder. Simply, I thought yeah. the question sounded like that. So they're just substituting species for gender, basically. And this will become important later. Okay, yeah. So, uh, the results. Uh, in terms of the stereotype confirmation, there was indeed a higher proportion of males amongst the fairy participants. 87% male, as opposed to 49% amongst the controls. Um, they, the fairies also reported a significantly higher liking for cartoons as children and a significantly higher liking for science fiction as adults. And there was, but there was only a trend effect for glasses and beard wearing. Hmm. So, you know, some aspects of the stereotype being borne out, I guess. Um, some more descriptive statistics. The most commonly reported species affiliations were fox or fox combinations, 20.6%. put money on that. Wolves? Uh, uh, yes, 17% wolf or wolf combinations, 10% uh, dragon or, or dragon combinations, oh, yeah. and 6% tiger or tiger combinations. Oh, right, okay. I thought rabbit would be higher up. Maybe that's just yeah. me with my watership down thing going on. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, fall of a fraffer, man. Um, so uh, the combination, so they, those combinations that they included were because a fairly common theme within the fairy fandom is for one's animal's identity to be an amalgam of two or more different species uh, common okay. ones including false 
i.e. fox wolves or cabbits, cat rabbits. Apparently. Gosh, cat rabbit, that's terrible. Hmm. That's weird. Uh, but no weirder than anything else within this fandom or, frankly, anything else anywhere else on the internet. True. Uh, so 26% said that they owned a fursuit and 30% said that they wore one, which tells me that there is some costume hire companies doing a roaring trade from fairies, which yeah. makes a lot of sense. Um, so quite a nice aspect of the study was that the sexual orientation question was open. Quite a not nice aspect of the study was that having allowed participants to openly define their sexuality, the researchers then only analysed those whose responses could be categorised as heterosexual, homosexual or bisexual. What? That's yeah. so stupid. That is like... so, so stupid. I, I just want to raise this now. Uh, I, a lot of what I'm talking about in this study comes not only from the original paper, but from a critique that I found published in the same journal in 2011 by uh, okay. Fiona proben Rapsi at the University of Sydney, um, which is kind of a, a response and a critique of the article. And if you're interested in this stuff at all, I really suggest you read it. Obviously, links in the show notes. Um, she points out in her critique that if you are interested in a specific subset of individuals who exhibit atypical social identities, then excluding people from that subset who have atypical sexual identities is pretty problematic. Yeah. 19, only 19 of the 246 fairy participants provided uncategorizable sexual identities. But this is compared to only five of the non-fairy participants. Now, obviously, that sample is way too small to draw any concrete conclusions, but that's like four times as many in the fairy condition. Yeah. What they did find with their limited categorization was that furry males were slightly more likely to be homosexual or bisexual than non-fairy males, as were female fairies. So, you know, there is a there was a slight tendency towards non-heterosexual identities um, amongst fairy participants. So finally, the non-human species identification questions. So the two items drawn from the DSM-4, gender identity disorder, questions were actually two of the least frequently ticked items. So only uh, 30% of the furries said that they were felt like they were non-humans trapped in a human body, and only like 24% said that they felt discomfort or inappropriateness. The most commonly ticked item was feeling of shared characteristics with a non-human species, with 81% of the furries saying that they felt that way. Which but makes sense. Does make sense. Genetically, but, we do. But yeah, I wonder if what those statistics were in the non-furry uh, population. Oh, did um, they not report that? I don't think that they do but i'm not going to say for certain okay because yeah. that might be mis misleading yeah uh, they certainly don't do a statistical comparison in their main results presentation okay. yep. there um so this is the next is where it starts to get a little bit less descriptive uh and a little bit more problematic um so in the next section under the heading furry typology typology uh, Gabassi uses her data to subdivide fairies into different types. Now, she's kind of starting this whole article from the, the first principle that there are different kinds of fairies. And so she's trying to form some kind of consistent taxonomy here. Yeah. So she decides to split these uh, types along dimensions of self-perception and species identity. So okay. self-perception is basically what species do you think you are? And species identity is are you happy with the species that you are 
Okay. So Gavassi subdivides the, the self-perception category into either distorted or undistorted. Specifically, any furry participant who disagreed with the phrase, do you consider yourself 100% human, is labelled as distorted. Okay. So you could consider yourself 99% human and still be labelled as distorted. And for the species identity question, any furry who agreed with the statement, if you could become 0% human, would you, is labelled as unattained, as in that they've not obtained their desired species, that they're dissatisfied with it. So problems with this. And once again, I'm taking a lot of these from the the, uh, Rapsi critique. Um, So the first... uh, problem is binary responses once again in a survey that is meant to tap into individuals with complex and atypical identity structures the authors are kind of imposing artificially binary responses by saying that either you feel 100 percent human or you are distorted uh, and that you're dissatisfied with your species if you want to be anything less than 100 percent human to draw an analogy with gender identity disorder a biologically male person would have to either feel 100 percent male or be labelled as having gender distortion, and they must not wish to be anything less than 100% male, or they were unattained, unsatisfied. Uh, So this feeds into problem number two, which is definition. So Gavassi goes to great lengths to define what being a furry means, but she never really defines what being a human means. The point is that it's entirely likely that furries will probably have a different idea about what being human means to the researchers. And given what a nebulous concept it is, who are the researchers to impose their ideas of what a human is on their subjects by labelling them as distorted? Biologically speaking, we're all animals. The furries are just more flexible on which animals they identify with, which sounds very familiar. You know, biologically speaking, most of us are either male or female, but some people are just more flexible about which gender they identify with. Mm. And to a related degree, incidentally, which kind they want to have sex with. Um, so the final point that Rapsi makes in her critique, which I'd like to draw attention to, is regarding treatment. So in her conclusion, Gobasi suggests that furries in the distorted condition could represent uh, individuals suffering from a new kind of psychiatric illness, which yeah. she calls species identity disorder. Sure. Note that initially when she's bringing up the different categories she she draws the specific case of the distorted unattained as being the ones who are kind of in the disordered condition but the language changes as she moves into the conclusion and she just starts just talking about the distorted individual okay. so anyone who doesn't feel 100% human now if we're giving her the benefit of the doubt that could just be lack of care over language but sure. the fact remains that she is suggesting that a subset of furries be considered as suffering from mental illness, which has a whole host of implications when it comes to treatment. Now, Rapsi points out that many of the common treatments for gender identity disorder can be based around preventing or repressing the emergence of cross-gendered identity, things like limiting opportunities for cross-dressing, encouraging same-sex friendships. And it's easy to see how this could be extended to species identity disorder, you know, banning the fursuits, discouraging soft animal toys or anthropomorphized cartoons in childhood. And there really is not much difference conceptually between this kind of approach and camps designed to cure homosexuality. Well, yeah, I was going to say, like, I was thinking most of the treatment for gender identity, isn't it? You know, you get a sex change. 
but you can't become an anthropomorphic animal. Yeah. So one thing that Rhapsody does mention, which I do rather like, is uh, a Norwegian model of gender identity treatment called the queer positive approach. Lovely. Uh, uh, I don't know if you've come across this at all. I'm not aware of it, but the, throw it at me. We'll see yeah. if it's clear. So uh, developed by a person called EEP Benestad. Um, now, you know, it's it's not particularly sort of groundbreaking in terms of the concepts it's talking about. But I, I like the idea that there's someone out there who's kind of codified a specific, like, gender identity disorder treatment called the queer positive approach. And yeah. it basically takes the stance that people who are the people actually being distressed by atypical gender identity are those around the patient, not the patient okay. themselves. Uh, although the consequences of that distress usually in turn distress the patient. Yeah. So the solution proposed is that we treat the parents, the teachers, the peers, and encourage them to accept the idea of atypical gender rather than forcing the patient into potentially uncomfortable conformity. And there's, you know, and, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And there's no particular reason why this approach shouldn't be taken with species identity disorder if we do decide to consider it a thing. After all, you know, the fairies, they, they mostly don't want to yiff you. They, they're, they're no more than any other weirdo on the Internet anyway. And at the end of the day, given the chance, most of us probably would like to be a little bit more dragon if we could. Um, yeah, so there we go. Uh, fairies. Interesting, really interesting. Uh, yeah. Both the study itself and being kind of a first pass at empirically studying fairy identity, they got a lot of things right. And yes, definitely. also the critique, very interesting. I, fa I, I just found this fascinating. So anyway, uh, to our much vaunted and award-winning conclusion section. Yes, uh, don't worry. All of these studies will, will, will have been in there. You will have heard some of everything um, somehow. But yeah, basically anthropomorphism, we do it for a ton of reasons. A lot of them connected to our, the knowledge that we kind of evoke. So things like similarity and the fact that we've been humans all our lives. So that's the kind of way we think about things to do with um, needing to be social. And that for the fact that a pet can be as good as a human for company. And uh, because... Um, we want to be effective and thing is we can figure out stuff better if we just assume things act like humans and then there are specific examples yeah now we can figure things out better but sometimes it's not the best idea to anthropomorphize particularly if you're a sexist because if you are a sexist and you anthropomorphize you might get killed by a hurricane uh, yes and, and finally uh as a sort of extreme example of anthropomorphism as a central element of human identity, furries are a thing. Uh, whether species identity disorder is a thing is highly debatable, uh, but it's certainly interesting. And the idea of sort of anthropomorphism as a or zoomorphism as a central element of a group identity is kind of fascinating. Yeah. Furries. Yes. So... Next time will be our hundredth episode. It will be exciting. I hope. Yeah, um, for sure. We we big anniversary. We've got we've got some fantastic ideas kicking around. We know pretty much exactly what we're going to do. It's just about hashing it out. Uh, <laughs> those are lies. 
<laughs> well, we maybe we could hash it out. We take some drugs live on air and see what happens. <laughs> I did think I was actually I had some pims earlier. Um, I thought well, we could just get drunk and podcast. Yeah. <laughs> And then I mean, I we thought, should do oh. that at other times, certainly. But... <laughs> yeah, maybe not, Brother Hunter. Yeah. Ruin all the goodwill. Um, but yes, if you want to send us final suggestions for what we should do with that, or talk to us about anthropomorphism, there's a good few ways you can do that. Uh, Twitter's quite a good one, at Team Psychomedia, or at Tetrarchangel. Uh, you can email us, uh, psychomediapodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can do what Sam did and go to facebook.com slash psychomedia and write on our fan page or share an episode or, you know, interact socially. I believe the Facebook page was where the hurricane study may have originally been posted. Uh, so you get interesting, like, non-discussed tidbits on there. And, of course, but of course, you should all go to psychomedia.wordpress.com for the show notes where you will find pictures uh, of assorted fairies as SFW as I could manage to make them with some cropping. Uh, There's a video of a bear on its hind legs, which will be brilliant, and all sorts of other fun stuff for you to check out, you cool internet kids. Yes, absolutely. And until next time, uh, goodbye. Live long and yif. I used to be afraid that I'd never find the true me. You explain that as a human I'd never be free. All my fluffy shame, it left me alone. My suit I've sewn, my ears become large and my tail is unfurled all to see. Furry, oh, I compare you to a year from a rose all the way. Ooh, the more I wear this suit, the greater it feels, yeah. And now that my rose is in bloom, a fox, cat, wolf, dragon, I'll stay.